I do believe there's a strong case. I believe she believes there's a strong case, and if so, she should move forward. And if she doesn't want to go forward, then we're going to have a big problem. Well, we've got a big problem. Lots of them. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It has been about a year and a half since we first covered the story uh, after the somewhat psychotic Republican Secretary of State of Alabama, John H. Merrill, first blocked me on Twitter while I was asking him some very polite questions to confirm some entirely inaccurate assertions that he had made about the computer tabulators used to tally votes in his state. And I was not the only one that he had done that to, apparently, that he had blocked on Twitter so I could no longer read the Twitter feed of the Alabama Secretary of State, election law experts like Rick Hassan, professor from UC Irvine out here in California, Josh Douglas, who joined us on the show to talk about it at the time uh, from the University of Kentucky. He had also, both of them had also been blocked by the Alabama Secretary of State, making it difficult for those of us who cover elections either as election law experts or journalists, to cover what was going on in the sometimes bizarre world of Alabama elections. Is that a nice way to put it, Desi Doyen? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. We we covered the story again of him blocking me after a federal court found that it was unconstitutional for Donald Trump as president to block uh, followers on his Twitter feed because he did not like what they had to say about him or to him. The federal court ruled that it was a violation of the plaintiff's First Amendment rights by barring them from a forum with a public official on the basis that the public official did not like what they had to say, particularly since the mute function was available to them, to Donald Trump in this case, on Twitter, which would have allowed 
the plaintiffs here to post on Twitter as they see fit and participate in the conversation, but prevented Trump from having to see what the person said if he just muted them rather than blocking them. We had one of the plaintiffs in that case against the president, legal journalist Rebecca Pilar Buckwalter Poza, on the show at the at the time to discuss it, I think both before and after she had won that case as one of seven plaintiffs that had sued Donald Trump. Trump was forced to unblock her after that case. When we asked uh, Alabama Secretary of State, when I asked John Merrill whether if he would now unblock those that he had blocked, given the federal court ruling, he wrote me a series of Kind of crazy emails that went along with a, a crazy phone call to me. Remember this? He called. Oh, yes. You remember it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, his emails, which his own communications staff was obviously embarrassed by, said that he would absolutely not restore those who he had blocked on Twitter, no matter what that federal court had found, no matter whether they had found it to be unconstitutional or not. He didn't care. He said, I, it, uh, among the things he said in his emails to me, I know you have a problem and your problem is bigger than one that I have the ability to solve. The Alabama Secretary of State wrote to me at the time. You don't have a right to speak to me or communicate with me any way you want to. He said, let me make this clear. I will not be unblocking anyone that I have blocked. Don't worry. You're not going to get on unblocked and neither are the others I have blocked. His somewhat unhinged uh, emails at the time continued that even again after a federal court had said that uh, blocking people by public officials from accounts that they use for public purposes was not just unlawful, but unconstitutional. Especially when a mute function is available. And then it's dumb. And it is dumb, but that's what he he's yes. he's the Secretary of State of Alabama. I have nothing but nice things to say about him. And then today, a federal appeals court has now confirmed that previous court ruling from that lower federal court on the matter. President Trump cannot block his critics from the Twitter feed he regularly uses to communicate with the public. The federal appeals court confirmed on Tuesday in a case with implications for how elected officials nationwide interact with constituents on social media, according to Washington Post. The decision from the New York-based appeals court upholds the earlier ruling that Trump violated the First Amendment when he blocked individual users critical of the president or his policies. In the unanimous decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, Judge Barrington Parker wrote, quote, the First Amendment does not permit a public official who utilizes a social media account for all manner of official purposes to exclude persons from an otherwise open online dialogue because they expressed views with which the official disagrees. He wrote, in resolving this appeal, we remind the litigants and the public that if the First Amendment means anything, it means that the best response to disfavored speech on matters of public concern is more speech, not less. The First Amendment prevents, uh, prevents the government from blocking or excluding views that it disagrees with in what is known as viewpoint discrimination. 
The Supreme Court has not directly addressed how the law applies to the digital uh, spaces for public debate, but the case involving the president's account with millions of followers was a high-profile legal test. And so far, the president has lost in uh, both of those legal tests at the lower court and the appeals court. This is a, a, a lesson, a test that apparently the Secretary of State of Alabama believes does not apply to him, or at least he had. Maybe it's a separate constitutional First Amendment that uh, these judges are referring to. I don't know. Uh, I have since sent a letter to uh, an email to John Merrill, Secretary of State of Alabama, to see if this appellate court confirmation will change anything on his end. I have yet to hear back. If I do, I'll let you know. Elected officials, however, throughout the country are also learning to navigate how those principles apply to their social media accounts. According to The Post, the rulings from the New York-based appeals court echoed an earlier decision from a Richmond-based appeals court involving the Facebook page of a Virginia politician uh, who also uh, was had to unblock the uh, user in question, the constituent in that case in question. In the president's case, attorneys from the Knight Institute at Columbia University represented the blocked users. They said Trump's Twitter account is an extension of the presidency routinely used by Trump to announce government nominations, defend his policies, promote his legislative agenda. Judge Parker wrote the government's contention that the president's use of the account during his presidency is private founders in the face of uncontested evidence in the record of substantial and pervasive government involvement with and control over that account, he said. The judge used the Trump administration, current and former officials own remarks here about Trump's tweets to argue that the account is an official government account preventing Trump from blocking users on a whim. If this was just his personal account, now it is his personal account. He does have another one for POTUS. This is his personal account, but he uses it clearly for official purposes. Knight Institute's executive director, Jamil Jaffer, said in a statement after the ruling that public official social media accounts are now among the most significant forums for discussion of government policy. This decision will ensure that people aren't excluded from these forums simply because of their viewpoints. It will help ensure the integrity and vitality of digital spaces that are increasingly important to our democracy. That, of course, is only true, however, if those public officials actually follow the court's dictates. Trump, in fact, did unblock Rebecca Buckwalter uh, Pose's Twitter account after the lower court ruling. Merrill, the secretary of state of Alabama, as noted, did not because he apparently doesn't think it applies to him. Well, we will see if he does so now and if he answers my uh, my query on this or whether he plans to push his luck and. Wait until he himself gets sued and Alabama has to pay to defend him. Trump, following court orders, however, uh, it was a nice surprise earlier in his in this presidency when he did follow those orders and did restore at least the uh, seven plaintiffs who had sued him. Uh, the idea of following court orders is obviously something that he's been rethinking now that he's lost at the Supreme Court on issues like adding a citizenship question to the U.S. Census. But 
I'll try to get to more of that in a bit today, uh, as there is a lot of legal stuff to get caught up on today as court action against the president seems to be multiplying at this point by the hour right now. And it is not easy to sort out which cases, which which ones are new in this, uh, frankly, unprecedented moment of of an unprecedented, uh, precedented uh, scofflaw presidency which is using the mechanisms of government itself to try and protect him on a personal level. But before I get to those, a few other quick stories of note and some 2020 presidential politics before we get there today, even some 1992 presidential politics. H. Ross Perot, the uh, self-made, colorful Texas billionaire who rose from a childhood of Depression-era poverty and twice ran for president as a third-party candidate, has died. He was 89 years old. The cause of death was leukemia, according to a family spokesperson. Perot, who's 19 percent of the vote in 1992, stands among the best showings by an independent candidate running for president in the past century. He died early Tuesday at his home in Dallas, the last third-party candidate to do as well as that 19% that Perot got in 92, was President Theodore Roosevelt back in his 1912 run when Democrat Woodrow Wilson ended up defeating uh, both Roosevelt, who was the uh, progressive candidate, the bull moose progressive candidate, and defeated the former rep- uh, the incumbent Republican uh, president at the time, William Howard Taft. But Perot's run in 1992, of course, has been attributed to the re-election loss of then-President George H.W. Bush, who was defeated by Bill Clinton, though it's not entirely clear that it is true that Ross uh, cost Bush the election. Various studies have found that Perot's candidacy may have taken away as many votes, if not more, from Bill Clinton as it did from Bush, or uh, otherwise brought out people who would have stayed home entirely that year. Still, it never seems... um, To much help a sitting president, it seems, when there is a popular third-party candidate running. Just saying. Justin Amash. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. (laughs) Former President George W. Bush said in a statement that Texas and America lost a strong patriot, uh, adding that Perot epitomized the entrepreneurial spirit and the American creed. He gave selflessly of his time and resources to help others in our community, across our country, and around the world. I would say also that if you're too young to remember Ross Perot, then do go ahead and look him up. He had uh, he had some very interesting ideas, and he did he had a really colorful life, to say the least. Yeah, but look up Dana Carvey's impression of him that on too. Saturday Night Live instead. <laughs> that too. Much more fun. All right, now, uh, speaking of self-funding billionaires running for president, uh, back to 2020 presidential politics. Yes, after 38-year-old California Congressman Eric Swalwell, who is not a billionaire, dropped out of the Democratic primary race on Monday. As we also noted on Monday's show, California billionaire, environmental and impeachment activist Tom Steyer 
has now announced that he is, in fact, getting into the race, into the Democratic race for president, reversing course after deciding earlier this year that he would forego a run. Here's some of his announcement video today in which he focuses on how corporate money in politics has absolutely crippled our nation. And yes, it's politics. I think what people believe is that the system has left them. I think people believe that the corporations have bought the democracy, that the politicians don't care about or respect them, don't put them first, are not working for them, but are actually working for the people who have rigged the system. The lawyers have basically gotten the Supreme Court to say that corporations are people, and therefore they have all the rights in the Constitution given to people. Now, obviously, corporations don't have hearts or souls or futures. They don't have children. They have a short time frame, and they really care about just making money. If you give them the unlimited ability to participate in politics, it will skew everything because they only care about profits. You know, you look at climate change. That is people who are saying, we'd rather make money than save the world. If you think about the drug companies, the banks, screwing people on their mortgages, it's thousands of people doing what they're paid to do. Almost every single major intractable problem, at the back of it, you see a big money interest for whom stopping progress, stopping justice is really important to their bottom line. Americans are deeply disappointed and hurt by the way they're treated, but what they think is the power elite in Washington, D.C., and that goes across party lines and it goes across geography. We've got to take the corporate control out of our politics. All these issues go away when you take away the paid opposition from corporations who make trillions of extra dollars by controlling our political system. What do we care about? We care about proving the world and handing it on to the next generation in a way so that they can lead better lives than we've had, in a way that's safer, more prosperous, and more beautiful and creative. And if we don't do those two things, then shame on us. If you think that there's something absolutely critical, try as hard as you can and let the chips fall where they may. And that's exactly what I'm doing. My name's Tom Steyer. I'm running for president. That is Tom Steyer. He is running for president. Hard to uh, hard to disagree with anything he uh, any of the statements he makes in no. that. No, he's on the right side of video. history when it comes to those uh, tenets and ideas. Uh, he is. Uh, he is uh, sixty two years old. He's one of the. Mo- I don't know what his chances are, by the way, of emerging from this huge field of Democrats, but. The points he's making are certainly right on point. Uh, He is one of the most visible and deep-pocketed liberals advocating for Donald Trump's impeachment, according to AP. He surprised many Democrats back in January. He had traveled to Iowa, home to the uh, first presidential caucuses, to declare that he would, instead of running for president, he would focus entirely on the impeachment effort instead of seeking the White House. Uh, But he has now uh, reversed that position. He says he's grown frustrated at the pace at which the Democratic-controlled House is approaching Donald Trump. Roughly half of the more than 20 Democratic presidential contenders have uh, called on House Democrats to start an impeachment inquiry, but Speaker Nancy Pelosi is resisting warning that Democrats need to collect the facts and that a rush to judgment could ultimately help Trump politically. 
which, is, you know, a rush, really, at this point? This would be a rush? I mean, this should have been rushed months ago, frankly. Despite becoming a national voice on the impeachment issue, Steyer made no mention of it in his campaign announcement, as irony would have it. Instead, he said his campaign will focus on reducing the influence of corporations and politics. He also plans to target climate change, which I suspect Desi Doyen will be happy about. Oh, yes. Especially if Jay Inslee, the Washington state governor, has to uh, get out at some point because well, he can't raise enough money. It would be a shame if Inslee dropped out, but Steyer got to stay in because Inslee actually has the most comprehensive and practical plan to get this done with the speed and scope we require. But, you know, I'll take whoever can get in well, and beat Trump at this it, point. It, it, might be, uh, it might be a shame, but this is the way politics works. If Inslee can't raise the money... He'll have to drop out because you need money these days to run. And yep. Tom Steyer happens to have his own money. He's a billionaire. So that's where we are. Lots of irony uh, built into all of this. Um, his uh, his uh, his group, his uh, climate change group is called Next Gen America. And as he's seeking the presidency, he's resigning leadership from both his positions at Next Gen America and his other group, which is called Need to Impeach. You can guess what that one's about. Uh, he says he has committed more than $50 million through 2020 to the two organizations, however, so they will continue on presumably without him. Steyer uh, joins the race just three weeks before the next presidential debates at the end of July. Uh, he's going to have to struggle to get a spot on the stage on that next two-night event. However, he probably won't meet the polling requirements to participate. He might be able to uh, clear the uh, grassroots fundraising threshold, however. We will see. But speaking of presidential politics, including third-party presidential politics and impeachment and the failure of Democrats to take sharp enough action, at least in my opinion, against the most scofflaw president to ever soil the White House. Congressman Justin Amash, the conservative congressman from Michigan elected during the 2010 Tea Party wave, who announced last week that he was leaving the GOP, said on Sunday that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is, quote, making a mistake by not starting impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. Amash told CNN's Jake Tapper that Pelosi's reluctance to begin impeachment proceedings is a, quote, big problem during his appearance on Tapper's State of the Union Sunday. So you've come out in support of impeaching or at least beginning the proceedings of impeaching President Trump. You said there's no point. Uh, informally bringing articles of impeachment right now because Speaker Pelosi doesn't support it. Is she making a mistake? Do you think that the Democrats should be starting impeachment proceedings based on the Mueller report, what's in there about uh, potential obstruction of justice, which is the case you laid out? Yeah, from a principled moral position, she is making a mistake. Uh, from a strategic position, she's making a mistake. If she believes, as I do, that there's impeachable conduct in there, then she should say so. She should tell the American people we're going to move forward with impeachment hearings and, and uh, potentially articles of impeachment. When she says things like, oh, I think that we need to have the strongest case before we go forward, what she's telling the American people is she doesn't think there's a strong case. If she doesn't think that, then she shouldn't open her mouth in the first place and say she thinks there's impeachable conduct. I do believe there's a strong case. I believe she believes there's a strong case, and if so, she should move forward and make sure that the American people understand what's going on. Because 
People at home aren't reading the Mueller report. Most people don't have time to read a 448-page report. Ex they expect their members of Congress to do the work for them. They want Speaker Pelosi to do the work. They want other members to do the work. And if she doesn't want to go forward, then we're going to have a big problem. Last question. How many of your Republican colleagues do you think have actually read the Mueller report? I think it's probably less than 15%. And I'd say that's uh, probably the case on both sides of the aisle. Do you think it's that once anyone reads it, they would reach the same conclusion as you? I think uh, a large number of them would reach the same conclusion. There are some who could reach different conclusions. Um, but when you look at the conduct in there, when you look at the evidence that's presented, I think basically anyone would be indicted for that conduct, anyone who is not the president of the United States. He makes a hell of a good case, uh, and I wish there was a Democrat out there, frankly, making as good a case on uh, on impeachment as Justin Amash, now former Republican, has been out there and making. He left the Republican Party in an op-ed on Independence Day, announcing that he was uh, leaving the Republicans. He also went on to say that many high-level Republican officials are actually supportive of impeaching President Trump. At least that's what he claimed uh, to Tapper in another part of the interview, saying they just don't want to talk about it publicly. I get, uh, you know, people sending me text messages, people calling me saying, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, great op-ed. Uh, when I was discussing impeachment, I had fellow colleagues and, and other Republicans, high-level officials, contacting me saying, thank you for what you're doing. So there are lots of Republicans out there who are saying these things privately. But they're not saying it publicly. And I think that's a problem for our for our country. It's a problem for the Republican Party. Um, it's a problem for the Democratic Party when people aren't allowed to speak out. So I, I think we really need the American people to stand up and say, hey, enough is enough. We've had it with these two parties trying to ram their partisan nonsense down our throats week after week. We want a person to go represent us and be uh, open and represent the entire community. Amash, uh, by the way, also said that he will, um, well, he, he, well, he's planning on running as an independent for Congress next year in Michigan, but that he is still leaving the door open for a run for president uh, as a third party candidate, in this case on the libertarian ticket. Are you running for re-election as an independent in, to Congress? Yes, I am. You are, and you think you can win as an independent? Yes, I'm very confident about that. What about the possibility of your running for president uh, as a libertarian or some under uh, some under some other uh, ticket? Um, I asked you about that uh, four or five months ago and you didn't rule it out. Is it possible you would run for president? I still wouldn't rule anything like that out. Um, I believe that I have to use my skills, my uh, public influence where it uh, serves the country best. And I believe I have to defend the Constitution which, in whichever way works best. And if that means doing something else, then I do that. But uh, I feel uh, confident about running in my district. I feel a close tie to my community. I feel I care a lot about my community. I want to represent them in Congress. When do you think you'll make a decision about a possible presidential run? Well, it's, it's something people talk about all the time. Uh, it's not something that's right on my radar right now. So I, I couldn't tell you. Well, there you go. That would be interesting if he did run. He's still not uh, saying he won't if he ran as a third party uh, libertarian. Well, that would certainly mix things up, especially since we've been talking about Ross Perot and the impact that he had. It did not help the reelection of George H.W. Bush. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt back in 1912 did not help the reelection of William Howard Taft. 
So, yeah, third parties can have an effect like that. Uh, I, I suspect that Democrats might like the idea of Justin Amash running because they think that it's going to siphon. They might think it siphons off a lot of otherwise Republican votes. I would suggest if he's, you know, uh, the only one at that point still speaking so effectively about the need for impeachment, impeachment, it could well siphon off a lot of Democratic votes as well. So just another reason that Democrats may want to get their act together on impeachment of the most impeachable president this nation has ever seen by a long shot. Why Democrats are so terrified of playing hardball here is beyond me. This president is certainly not afraid of any such thing, of these sorts of hardball tactics. Even when it comes to defying his own stolen U.S. Supreme Court, if he thinks he has to. And on that note, uh, the Justice Department, we've got some breaking news here on this as well. Uh, the literally, as while you were listening to Amash here, um, we'll get to that in a moment. The Justice Department announced, of course, as you know, on Sunday that it was replacing the legal team defending the Trump administration's effort to put a citizenship question on the next census, which would be uh, all but unprecedented in legal battles as consequential as this one writes the uh, New York Times. The department said in a statement that it was, quote, shifting these matters to a new team of civil division lawyers going forward, but offered no explanation for the en masse change, which came on the heels of an extraordinary week uh, last last week after a year long clash over the issue that has raised concerns about whether the department's arguments for adding the question could be believed. Well, it didn't just raise concerns, New York Times. It actually exposed the administration yet again as liars, which even U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts was willing to see through when he broke with the other right-wingers on the stolen Supreme Court to deny the administration's current phony excuse for wanting to add that question, which was really in hopes of harming Democrats and Hispanics over the next decade at the ballot box and in federal resources in favor of, you know, white Republicans as the actual evidence from a now deceased uh, GOP gerrymandering expert uh, showed us quite plainly and directly. The move to replace all of the attorneys, according to The Times, strongly suggests the department's career lawyers had decided to quit a case that at least seemed to lack any legal basis to move to move forward and left a whole bunch of them defending statements that they had well that could would are untrue Justin Levitt a former senior official in the justice department under Barack Obama and an occasional guest on this show over the years he said on Sunday there is no reason why these uh, attorneys would be taken off that case unless they saw what was coming down the road and said, I won't sign my name to that. This is uh, unprecedented. The change in the legal team appeared to signal an even deeper problem for the administration's effort to get that question on the next census, according to the Times. The department's lawyers had for months defended false assertions from Commerce Secretary Wil Wilbur Ross that the Justice Department was the one that sought this citizenship question to better enforce the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which nobody bought. But, you know, this was uh, both the DOJ and the Secretary of Commerce who had oversees the census lying 
to Congress and to federal courts about this. Three federal courts all ruled that the explanation was clearly an excuse for some other goal. And then uh, a week or two ago, the Supreme Court agreed. So the Justice Department announced they were not going to keep the fight going. They told a federal judge that the battle was over, quote, for once and for all. And then they were blindsided by Donald Trump in the middle of the week last week, who said on uh, Twitter that uh, the statements from his own DOJ and his own Commerce Department, both of whom confirmed they would not be continuing this battle, that those comments were, quote, fake. Trump then insisted that, yes, we're going to get that question on there anyway, come hell or high water. The uh, the plaintiffs uh, argued in the case that the government's heads I win, tails will see approach undermines confidence in both the uh, their ability to conduct the 2020 census and public confidence in the rule of law. Not that the Trump administration cares, but they note that if any ordinary litigant had done that, had engaged in such conduct where their attorneys went and said one thing to the court. And then, uh, as uh, one of the judges said, you know, if Facebook had come and made an argument, their attorneys came and made an argument. And then Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, uh, went out and made a public announcement that, no, I disagree with my attorneys, that he would haul both of them, all of them into court. But I guess he can't haul the, the, the president into court. That said, all of that, these plans to get rid of these attorneys and replace them with Trumpier ones, uh, as of the, uh, this morning, actually as of Monday, had hit a bump, a, a real snag. And as of just a few minutes ago, it seems to have run off the road into a ditch. Oh, my. Yes. On Monday, the ACLU took issue with the uh, legal shakeups, telling the uh, court in a filing that they wanted to know why these judges were being replaced and to make you mean sure. Lawyers. What did I say? Judges? judges. Yes, lawyers were being replaced, and they wanted to make sure that it wouldn't stall any of the uh, the cases and the appeals on this matter because they had to sit around and wait for a new group of lawyers to get up to speed on this. And uh, what they were doing was they were planning, the DOJ had announced they were going to get rid of the attorneys who would normally cover a case like this, including, by the way, a Trump-appointed deputy attorney general, and instead replace them with a mix of political and career attorneys from the consumer protection branch. They had to basically, it sounds like, dial down the directory until they found somebody who was willing to put their name on it. Who was Trumpy enough to agree to uh, go with whatever scheme Bill Barr has in mind. Anyway, attorneys from consumer protection branch, also from the uh, Office of Immigration Litigation and the Civil Fraud Section. Yeah, anywhere they can find Trumpers. Neil Katyal, a former U.S. attorney and acting solicitor general, said on Twitter, he said, quote, never seen anything like this, a complete withdrawal by all the trial level experts at DOJ, all of them, every one, he said. This is the canary in the coal mine. Trump is stuck defending the census shenanigans with people from Consumer Protection Division, they do important work, he notes, just not this. 
So that was the ACLU uh, saying, no, we don't think it's appropriate or we'd like to know why you're removing these uh, judge, uh, these lawyers. And then this just in moments ago from The Washington Post, federal judge rejects Justice Department's bid to swap out lawyers for census case on the citizenship question. That just happened. Just now happened minutes ago. The federal judge in New York on Tuesday wrote that the department's request to withdraw the previous lawyers was, quote, patently deficient. And then it says this is a developing story. It will be updated later. So that's (laughs) all we know at this point. But the for now, anyway, the Department of Justice has once again, I guess, in this case, at least uh, been denied for now. So, yeah, the for now, indeed, the slow crawl towards all out constitutional crisis, I suspect, continues with that decision and a bunch others, uh, more on that score as congressional Democrats head back to court themselves today and prepare to issue a whole host of new subpoenas for some top administration officials, all likely to also be ignored by this administration for as long as they can anyway, but we will see. That story continues next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back. It's the Brad. It's uh, the canary in the coal mine. It's the Bradcast. <laughs> Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, did, hey, did I mention uh, at the top of the show that we've got a green news report coming up today? No, you didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, probably because it's got a lot of Trump in it, and yeah. given his kind of amazing, totally rambling, inane speech touting his administration's environmental accomplishments. Yeah, that's in quotes. You can't see it on radio, but his accomplishments uh, on Monday, this speech. Well, I didn't want to scare anybody off from the rest <laughs> of the show by saying that was coming up. Anyway, that's coming up. Don't be scared. Yes, I listened to it, so you didn't have to. There you go. Uh, he, he'll get what he deserves, maybe, eventually. Speaking of which, uh, as I referenced very quickly on yesterday's show, because that story was breaking literally at just a minute before air, uh, and I promised more details to Today, congressional Democrats have now issued subpoenas to the Trump Organization and other Trump businesses tied to a lawsuit accusing Donald Trump of profiting from foreign governments in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause. However, the Justice Department, the lawless Justice Department, is now asking an appeals court to step in and block 
these subpoenas. Democrats sent more than three dozen subpoenas demanding a response by July 29, seeking to collect evidence about the president's financial records. That after a federal judge ruled last month that Democrats could, in fact, proceed with the legal discovery process in these in this emoluments lawsuit. And that's what this is. So I know it's very confusing trying to keep all of these uh, suits straight, but this is the first time we have seen subpoenas of the Trump organization based on this emoluments lawsuit. And there are a couple of different emoluments lawsuit. This one is brought by members of Congress. The Justice Department, however, is defending Trump in his presidential capacity, of course. And they have requested that an appeals court overrule the lower court's decision on these uh, allowing discovery to move forward and prevent these subpoenas from going forward. If the Democratic members of Congress collected evidence in the emoluments lawsuit, the DOJ says Trump is, quote, likely to suffer irreparable injury because of, quote, intrusive discovery into his personal finances based on the public office that he holds. But yes, that's how the emoluments clause works. It is based on the public office he holds. If he wasn't president, there wouldn't be a question about the emoluments clause, uh, you know, which denies a president from receiving gifts, monies, favors from foreign governments. That is unconstitutional if you care about that sort of a thing. So how do we find out if the president is, in fact, receiving gifts and money and favors? Well, we got to find out what gifts and monies are being given to him and by whom. And how do we do that? By looking at the financial records for the companies which he refused to divest from when he became president. And how do we do that if he won't hand them over freely? Well, we subpoena them during the discovery process, which the judge said can move forward as of uh, the end of last month. And this is really not difficult or even unusual in in that regard, though it would certainly it is unusual to have to take these steps for any sitting president. The escalating court battle uh, represents a new front in Democrats quest to obtain the president's financial records, according to CNN, a battle that is now playing across multiple congressional committees and judicial jurisdictions. The new subpoenas come from the Constitutional Accountability Center. They are uh, representing a group of House and Senate Democrats, about 200 of them, led by Senate Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler of New York. They are alleging the violations of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The judge overseeing the suit, Emmett Sullivan of the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., gave the Democrats permission to subpoena the documents and to take depositions. As I said, beginning last month, the Justice Department asked in its filing on Monday for the D.C. Court of Appeals to hear their case before Sullivan finishes resolving it at the trial level. The department says Sullivan was wrong in his interpretation of congressional power and that the constitutional clause that prohibits officials from uh, receiving benefits from foreign powers was completely misread by this judge. Therefore, they have to go straight to the appeals court. 
Sullivan had previously told DOJ that no, they could not, at least not yet, appeal his decision that allowed the case to move forward into discovery. The Justice Department wrote to the uh, D.C. Circuit on Monday seeking their appeal that if the district court's clearly erroneous orders are allowed to stand, this improper suit will proceed and the members will commence discovery aimed at probing the president's personal financial affairs because he holds federal office. Well, right. They would not be doing that if he didn't hold federal office because he wouldn't be in potential violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause. They also, by the way, would not be doing this if Trump had actually divested his holdings or at least placed them into a blind trust, as most, if not all, previous presidents of the United States have actually done. But CNN notes it's an extraordinary step for the DOJ to go around a lower court's decision before a case is actually resolved. However, they note it is not unheard of, at least not by Trump's Justice Department, which also used the same maneuver in another case about emoluments. That one is before a federal court in Maryland. The uh, Fourth Circuit Appeals Court has uh, uh, not yet decided in that case. And, of course, they did something similar when they lied about the census deadline uh, in order to skip the appellate court altogether to go straight to the Supreme Court. That was the reason that they, they didn't go to the appellate court. They went straight to the Supreme Court in that case because they said the the uh, the deadline was absolutely hard and coming up to print the census at the end of June. And so there's no time to go through the appeals process. We have to go straight to the Supreme Court where we think we will win, given that we have a stolen and packed Supreme Court with Trump flunkies. But oops, Roberts didn't play along on that one. He said, go lie better. Come back. That's it. So the Maryland court has not decided, the appeals court has not decided, the D.C. court has not yet decided what to do because this was just, uh, the motion was filed on Monday as the Democrats are seeking uh, subpoenas from uh, presidents, uh, the the tax returns of the president's companies and other uh, financial information about Trump's business assets, including three Trump towers in New York in Washington, the Trump International in Washington, D.C., a San Francisco building and uh, the uh, Palm Beach Club Mar-a-Lago. Blumenthal said the subpoenas were intended to provide information about foreign government payments accepted by six Trump properties overall, as well as trademarks that are granted to Trump businesses by foreign governments. And yet, unsurprisingly, he notes the administration is still seeking to, quote, delay, delay, delay. But he says they're confident that the D.C. Circuit will, in fact, recognize the logic of the district court below it and allow discovery to proceed. However, there will be a delay. There will be a stall, which seems to be the uh, tactic of the Trump administration at this point. So add this to the list of many other subpoenas that are now happening and are now being fought by the president who describes them as presidential harassment, which is a phrase that he made up out of whole cloth, along with the so-called absolute immunity privilege that he is now claiming to block current and former administration officials from testifying to Congress. That in the other cases where they are trying to seek uh, the president's financial records as well as uh, interview, uh, get testimony from uh, uh, current and former officials. So all of those suits are going on. 
And there are several uh, committees that are already in court or either have subpoenas and or in court trying to uh, force the production, the response to those subpoenas. And now we have this today. Uh, The House Judiciary Committee will vote this week to authorize a whole bevy of new subpoenas on the Trump administration's practice of separating children from their families at the border and on Trump's obstruction of justice. These votes now are scheduled for Thursday and, according to the Times, will jolt two of the Democrats' highest profile oversight investigations into Trump and his administration. Among the targets for subpoenas this week, which will be voted on, are Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general, Michael Flynn, the president's first national security advisor, John Kelly, the former White House chief of staff, Rod Rosenstein, the former deputy attorney general, who appointed Robert Mueller as the special counsel, Corey Lewandowski, which is who was Trump's former campaign manager prior to his uh, next campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who is serving already serving time in federal prison, and David Pecker, who heads the American media company, which uh, took part in the hush money scheme. So they are still looking at that, the hush money scheme to pay off Stormy Daniels and others. And while I suspect the White House and the DOJ will come up with some fake absolute immunity reasons to disallow most of those on the list from testifying, sending all of this into court as well. Well, they'll have to be the White House and the DOJ will have to be a bit creative in how they keep Lewandowski and Pecker from testifying, given that neither of them ever worked in the White House. But they'll come up with something. They're also looking into these uh, promises that Trump reportedly made to officials uh, in uh, Customs and Border Protections when he said, I want you to close down the border. Don't worry if you get in trouble. I will pardon you for that. They are looking at that as well. The announcement from the Judiciary Committee comes as lawmakers on that panel and on the House Intelligence Committee are now preparing to hear directly from Robert Mueller himself next week for the first time. The former special counsel had resisted testifying, but he ultimately agreed to back-to-back two-hour public hearings with the committees. You may want to call in sick to work on Wednesday, July 17. Presuming it goes forward. I know I would call in sick if I had the opportunity, (laughs) but I don't. And also, by the way, New York Times buries this at the bottom. The committee will also authorize subpoenas for Jared Kushner. Donald Trump's son-in-law and White House advisor. Thanks for tossing that in, New York Times. Uh, Anyway, if if the committee votes to authorize these subpoenas as expected, then Nadler will have the discretion to decide when or if to use them. How about yesterday, Mr. Nadler? How about months ago? The committee has already authorized but not yet used subpoenas for Reince Priebus. That's Trump's first chief of staff and Steve Bannon, who helped run his presidential campaign. But, you know, no rush. It's only the fate of the republic hanging in the balance. Take your time. As to the fate of the planet hanging in the balance, well, we get to that after a quick break with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. 
and thanks. Okay, we, we waited as long as we could. I haven't <laughs> I haven't played a single Donald Trump quote the entire show. I know it's like nails on a blackboard for some folks, uh, but now we can avoid it no longer in our latest Green News Report. At our level, we are doing numbers that nobody's seen before. Nobody believes what what we're doing and what we're producing electricity and other things for. Trump gives a speech to tout his administration's environmental accomplishments. Yep, that really happened. Plus, this is a heat wave on steroids. Record heat waves in Europe and the Arctic make June 2019 the hottest June ever recorded. All of those records and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. When I went to California, they sort of scoffed at me for the first two weeks and maybe three weeks and not so much four weeks. And after about five weeks, they said, you know, he's right. Nope. No, he didn't. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Donald Trump's uh, touting of his own accomplishments aside, it was 90 degrees in Fairbanks, Alaska over July 4? (laughs) Yes, it was. But before we go there, first, June 2019 was the hottest June ever recorded globally. That's according to the European Union's Climate Data Agency. And it was thanks in part to the record extreme heat wave that gripped Europe and broke numerous heat records in several countries, including shattering France's all-time highest temperature record. And the worst heat of summer hasn't even started yet. Mm. Climate scientists at the World Weather Attribution Group concluded in an analysis that the European heat wave was made at least five times more likely because of man-made global warming. Yeah, well, what do those scientists know about science? Plus, for the first time in recorded history, as you mentioned, parts of Alaska hit a record 90 degrees over the 4th of July weekend, part of an extended heat wave. Climate scientists have linked both of these record heat waves in Alaska and in Europe to a slowdown in the jet stream that's triggered by the loss of sea ice in the Arctic, which acts as a sort of thermostat for the planet. Climate scientists warn that extreme heat waves are becoming more frequent and severe due to climate change, and worse, they're hitting more frequently than climate models had previously predicted. They keep giving us all of this science as if we're supposed to do something with it. Well, that is the idea. Oh. In Washington, D.C. on Monday, a sudden torrential rainfall of four inches an hour in some areas produced life threatening flooding, according to the National Weather Service, and stranded motorists and forced high-water rescues. NOAA has confirmed that since the 1950s, heavy rainfall events have increased in the United States by as much as 70 percent in some regions due to global warming. So four inches of rain in one hour in Washington, D.C. Did Donald Trump at least have the decency to point that out during his environmental speech? Of course he didn't. Those heat waves and the insane D.C. rain event provided the perfect backdrop for President Trump's speech on Monday. He promoted his environmental record despite his rollbacks of nationwide limits on air and water pollution, his rollbacks of mileage and emission standards for cars, his wholesale dismantling of U.S. climate policy. Flanked by his two senior environmental officials, both of them begging people not to look out the window, and both of them former fossil fuel 
fuel industry lobbyists, Trump touted gains in U.S. air and water quality that occurred under previous administrations and didn't mention that he has reversed those gains since he took office. Air and water quality have actually declined, and climate warming carbon emissions have gone up in the last two years. He didn't even mention the word climate change. He did ramble about cleaning, quote, dirty forest floors. <laughs> it's a lot of things happening, but it's management. You can't have dirty floors. You can't have 20 years of leaves and fallen trees. So you can't have that. That's why you have so many fires. Of course, there's not enough time here to debunk all of the false and misleading claims and outright lies. But this was emblematic of Trump's speech. We're working hard. I think harder than... Many previous administrations, maybe almost all of them. Scientists, environmental policy experts, and groups like the League of Conservation Voters say Trump has the worst environmental record of any president since environmental laws were created. So why did this speech at all? Polls show that voters are turned off by Trump's environmental record, especially women and millennials. The New York Times quotes anonymous campaign sources saying that with the environment and the climate crisis gaining traction in the 2020 presidential campaign, they are attempting to attract voters in swing states. So if he just shows up and says, I have a great environmental record, supposedly this is going to fool all of those uh, women and other people who are concerned about the environment? That seems to be the idea. It just may work. But finally, some good news. Walmart has announced it's rolling out a network of electric car charging stations across Arkansas and plans to open a national EV charging network. And the U.S. Energy Information Administration has confirmed that in April, for the first time in U.S. history, renewable energy sources generated more electricity than coal for the full month. The bulk of the clean energy came from hydroelectric dams, but solar and wind energy were significant contributors. The decline of coal's pollution is good for anything that breathes. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us, please, planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Travel ahead, travel behind, and know that motion just my mind. By the way, Desi Doyen, you say that rainfall in Washington, D.C., uh, four broke inches in an hour. The record for one hour rainfall. It was so intense. It broke D.C. rainfall records. And uh, and then Trump gives his speech, doesn't mention a thing about it. Of course uh, a speech not. on environment. Yeah, why bother? Unbelievable. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and family. Uh, it is free thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate and support the work that Desi and I do here or try to do here every day. We could not do it without you. bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the bradblog. We'll see you there. If we don't, we'll see you right here tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 